Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, where each week we're asking one of the artists who appeared at Hay 2021 to pick out their three favourite clips from the Hay Festival archive. This week is the turn of author Liz Hyder. Hello, I'm Liz Hyder. I'm the author of Bearmouth and of the forthcoming The Gifts. One of the reasons I love Hay Festival so much is that it's not just a festival of literature, it's very much a festival of ideas. And it's also a celebration. It, it celebrates creativity and it celebrates ingenuity. But above all, and for me, I think probably the most important part of that is that it celebrates and champions intellectualism as well. And I'm hoping my three choices today will sort of reflect those different sort of facets of the festival. My first choice is an interview with Jackie Morris and Robert McFarlane. And they're being interviewed at the Winter Weekend from 2020 with Nicola Davis, who is a zoologist and a children's author in her own right as well. I'm sure The Lost Words doesn't really need much introduction. Um, That fantastic collaboration between Jackie and, and, and Robert McFarlane has been a huge success and is, I genuinely think, is one of the most beautiful, extraordinary, thought provoking and... I guess, hopeful collaborations that I've seen in the arts for a very long time. In this particular event, they're talking about Lost Spells, which is the sort of sister companion to um, The Lost Words. But they talk about collaboration in it and they talk about creativity. And I think it's a really lovely, interesting interview. And I hope you agree. Now, the first thing I'd really like you to explain to people (laughs) is um, I think the most noticeable thing about these two books is that there's been a, a definite change of scale here. So um, could you say something about that change of scale from the big to the small and exquisite, perfectly formed? <laughs> uh, well, I feel I ought to call you Nigella, first of all. Just yes, to, do. Just to get uh, well, uh, it's we call we call the lost spells the, the little sister uh, to 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 the lost words. The lost words was designed primarily to act as a um, as a field shelter. If you were caught in rain while out with the book, you could just hide underneath it, and it was it was big enough for for some of its littlest readers to uh, do what they wonderfully did. We saw in photographs crawl into this book. Uh, one of its very first readers said, "This is a this is a landscape." Um, that, that we can enter and seeing Jackie's paintings at that scale is an invitation. She's a she's she's a, a magician of space as, and absence as well as of uh, presence and colour. And that book had vast spaces in it, but the little sister does too because Jackie thinks so brilliantly in ways that are almost opaque to me about how we tell stories in space as well as in language. Um, but I think that the, the, the main reason we wanted to make a smaller book was so that people could, could put it in their pockets, put it in their packs, carry it, take it out to, to, to playground, to riverbank, to wood, um, a, a sort of field guide then. So, The Little Sister. And how different was it for you, Jackie, working at this scale from the lost words, the big scale of the lost words? um how different um in in some ways um easier in other ways not so easy um it's lovely having so much space um and both of the books were worked with the artwork at the same size as the finished book um one of the other reasons that it's smaller is 
because this time last year I was actually still not even halfway through the paintings for the book um, and it had a very very close deadline on it which I think was the end of February um, it's it's different it's a different way of working I, I'm always aware of space in books because um, as somebody who struggled to read myself I know that if you leave space it invites people in um, whereas if I have even now if I have a book which is just completely jam-packed with words I find that quite intimidating as a reader um, but yes, and the other thing, I didn't want to do the same book twice. I know some people, when they do sequels, um, it's kind of the same kind of thing. But it needed to be something very different. It needed to be its own person. Um, and I think it, I think it is. I, uh, you know, the words, I love the words. Um, my feeling was that the lost words was practice for the lost spells <laughs> which is also practice for birds so which is number three i i think a lot of people in the literary world really kind of struggle to think about collaborations um we're very kind of single person egocentric i think in the way we think about many art forms but this book uh, and uh, and your first book together were both real collaborations. And I think a lot of people would be very interested to hear about how that works. Do the pictures come first? Do the words come first? How, how, how does it work? The first thing I'd say first, is that- Robert. Yeah, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I'd say is that there, there are two names on this book, but there are, there are dozens really that should be there and so it's 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 a collaboration between me and jackie but also between so many readers so many children so many so many um grown-ups and our, our designer allison our our editors and um, simon prosta hermione thompson uh, so like any book it, it it's a, it's a misnomer to think of it as by one or by two people but this is collaborative at its core between me and jackie definitely um so um, I, I would typically send the, spe the spell or the whisper of a spell. But Jackie before then would have often served me up with a shopping list. She'd say, you haven't done me brown hair. I want a brown, <laughs> I want a brown hair spell. I want a blue whale spell. Um, uh, any chance? I don't know. She always asks very nicely and she has this very clever way of um, seeding an idea in my mind. And then she'll write, um, she'll write her own sort of sentences around the idea. And they're, they're often the the seed crystals that help precipitate the first words or the first images in my mind. So, so her words beget my words, and then quite often my words head over to Jackie in an email or a WhatsApp message saying, read this aloud, and uh, <laughs> Jackie can probably take over the story at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how's so it like it for you? More, it gets more informative as, as the time goes on, but I'm constantly badgering Paul McFarlane with the emails during the days um, with things like I, I still ha actually haven't had the brown hair spell have I but um, moving <laughs> on. That's you there. told. <laughs> yeah yeah um, so um, yeah and blue whale as well um, yeah it's it's backwards and forwards with words <laughs> with images um, over email 
Um, we, we live a long way from each other. Two countries separate us and we rarely meet. Um, so a lot of the work is done through emails and notes appear in my sketchbook. Um, and then I'll take photographs of sketches or half-finished paintings and send them back to Rob. The very occasionally, um, I paint ahead of you, don't I? Um, sometimes it's not a good idea. I did that with Raven in The Lost Words, thinking that there was nothing that he could write about a raven that would make me change the way that I painted it. And then he did. So I'm, I'm cautious about doing that. Um, and it is a collaboration. It's, um, it's something about the space between the words and the images, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in, in how a book lives once we've finished it and it becomes the property of a reader. Um, and how every single book then is different and seen differently. How, how has that developed over time? How have you seen that uh, development of your reader community because with uh, with the first book you you very very quickly developed a reader community it seemed like there was a real a real hunger for that book uh, and a real appetite uh, for it that kind of was fed and exploded as soon as it as soon as it was out there in the world uh, and I, I'm imagining that you are already experiencing the same with this book. Rob? Yes. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a, basically a daily joy and a wonder and a, a privilege and it's sort of everything a writer could ever, or a maker could ever dream of. And we hear, we hear so much so often from people who've read the spells or, or shown the images as part of weddings or, or, or funerals um, uh, in, in their, uh, in schools, in care homes in hospices and I think I always think here the book is, is just a, a means really a catalyst for whereby care and love and tenderness and creativity can be expressed between individuals and between communities so this, this is something much much bigger and, and more important than than, than, than our books um, that they just happen to have in, intersected with that impulse and it's one we've seen so much during the during the pandemic where among all the awfulnesses, new new networks of caring and community have sprung into being, often across nation-state borders and, 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 and continental extents. And uh, it, it's been, I mean, we, we finished the last spell in this book, Silver Birch, which everyone heard read so beautifully by Julie Fowlis at the beginning of this event. Um, we finished that as uh, as the pandemic was really breaking and it, it is a spell about shelter from from storm about surviving the buffets uh, and the dangers that prowl around uh, a, a, a space of refuge and it, it it absolutely bears the marks of the time of its making even though I, I first started trying to write that spell about 18 months previously and jackie painted the incredible 24 page extent of that spell in 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 the last uh, last days of normal and the first days of awful and while while suffering herself as well so yes it's um it's a book of its time and has the way that you've worked together changed over time jackie do you do do you respond 
to Rob's words in a different way from the way you did when you first were working together? Um, I think uh, there's there's a lot to be said about getting to know each other. Um, we we came together as strangers. I knew Rob's work through his books, um, but uh, we'd not met. Um, and in that way, you, it's you know our books are not us, and and yet they are. Um, so that was strange, and I think. Uh, getting to know somebody, uh, becoming friends with somebody, yes, it does change the way that you work. My second choice is Marcus de Sotoy, the amazing mathematician. This is from an event from 2013, but I would say whenever you go to see Marcus, he will blow your mind. Um, I am very much not a mathematician, but whenever I go to see him, what I find extraordinary is that he enthuses me and he educates me um, and he makes incredibly complex mathematical concepts into sort of digestible, comprehensible information that someone like me can get very excited about, even though um, I don't really understand it, obviously, in the way that, that he does. But he's an extraordinary communicator and I think he's amazing. One of the things I love so much about this is that he talks about the language and the limitation of maths, but he also talks about spotting patterns and, and using those patterns for prediction and how powerful that can be. Um, and watch out for a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of music as well. Enjoy. Mathematics is an extraordinary language for being able to, to really navigate the scientific world around us. Um, it's enabled us to discover extraordinary things that I don't think without mathematics we would have been able to. Um, and I always love this quote of um, Galileo's, um, which uh, we could have... There we go. Um, this quote of Galileo's, I think, really sums up uh, how powerful mathematics is as a language. Galileo discovered so many things uh, using mathematics. Um, the universe cannot be read until we have learned the language and become familiar with the characters in which it is written. It is written in mathematical language, and the letters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which means it is humanly impossible to comprehend a single word. And with the power of mathematics, we were able to discover things uh, beyond the Earth in our solar system. For example, the planet uh, Neptune, which was first observed by Galla in 1846, wasn't actually discovered with a telescope, but was discovered using mathematics. We were able to predict there should be a planet out there um, because the, uh, the laws of gravity and the equations that we had said there's something which is pulling all of the planets around, and it, it, there's something missing in the equations. And they were able to identify that there should be a large mass out there which is doing this pulling about. And so Gala put his uh, telescope up to where um, this planet should be, and sure enough, we discovered Neptune. Um, it was interesting, Arago was one of the astronomers in France, uh, described how Le Verrier, who discovered this using mathematics, had discovered a planet with the point of his pen. So this is the power of mathematics to be able to predict things that are out there. Mathematics is a great subject for spotting patterns. For example, Mendeleev as well, um, he used patterns that he discovered in the atomic table to be able to predict new atoms that we hadn't discovered yet. So the, men the periodic table was kind of missing bits, and he said, well, there should be something at uh, square number 31, and he predicted a new atom that we should discover there. That mathematical pattern led us, a few years later, to the discovery of gallium. 
And even today, if you go to the Large Hadron Collider, the fact that we're able to predict new particles like the Higgs boson or perhaps other new particles, it's the power of mathematics which tells us what is sort of missing, the patterns that are there that help us to say we should be able to find something um, in the world around us. But actually, I'm usually a big supporter of how amazing maths is to understand the world around us. But in this talk, I'm going to do something slightly different. I want to show you what the limitations of our knowledge is. How, what are the things we, we actually cannot know? Are there limits to what mathematics can tell us? Are there limits to what we can discover in the scientific world or mathematically? So I've called my talk the irrational, the chaotic, and the incomplete. And I'm going to choose three, these three themes to explore how uh, mathematics can actually also tell us the limitations of our knowledge. So the irrational refers to the discovery by the ancient Greeks that there are things that we cannot um, write down completely. So actually, Pythagoras, one of my great heroes, um, was the person who discovered this idea of the irrational in mathematics. Um, I went to uh, Samos, where Pythagoras uh, uh, um, was based, and the town in, in uh, Samos is called Pythagorea, which is wonderful. I, w I want to go and retire to Pythagorea. Sort of, um, uh, what a wonderful town. To and there's a, this amazing statue um, to Pythagoras in Pythagorea, um, representing his great discovery about the connection between the lengths of a right-angled triangle. But it was this right-angled triangle which led to the discovery that there are things in mathematics which are very hard to capture. Pythagoras um, actually believed that the whole universe should be described by numbers. He believed in the power of numbers to describe the universe. And one of the things that led him to this belief in the power of number was his discovery that even music is related to mathematics. There's a very famous story how he was walking past a blacksmith um, one day, and he heard the blacksmiths hammering away at their anvils, and he heard notes emerging, um, and some of them sounded incredibly harmonious uh, together. And he was intrigued. What was it about these notes that, that we were found them kind of beautiful and harmonious. And he went, started to investigate um, uh, the relationship between the hammers that were creating these notes. And actually, it was when he went home and practiced on a string instrument that he realized that it was the whole number ratio of the frequencies that, in some sense, our ear is responding to. So for example, if you have a, something called the perfect fifth, which is one of the wonderful intervals in music, um, uh, you can make a perfect fifth. So that's a perfect fifth. A perfect fifth, if you take a guitar and you, do, um, you pluck it um, half the way along and then um, a third of the way along, then the ratio of the two to three relationship of the lengths of the string actually creates this um, thing we, we find very harmonic, the perfect fifth. Um, the octave, for example, um, two notes which almost sound the same, that's actually two lengths of, notes, uh, lengths of string which are in a one to two relationship. So if I pluck the string and then pluck it half the way along, I get this octave. So it sounds so similar, we give it the same name in, in, in music. But this perfect fifth was used to build up um, the scale. The reason that we divide the scale up into 12 notes is that if you do 12 of these perfect fifths, you get back to the note that you started with almost um, uh, just a few octaves higher. Um, so Pythagoras realized the power of these whole number ratios, um, that it seemed to be everywhere, even in music. And you get this idea of the, the music of the spheres. He believed that somehow the whole universe should be captured by the idea of these whole number ratios. That is until he investigated his um, great theorem, uh, the um, Pythagoras' theorem, because um, 
if you take a, so if you remember Pythagoras' theorem from school, if, um, the, the, if you take the square of the two shorter sides and add those together, that's actually equal to the square on the long side. So interestingly, if I take a, a, um, a very, let's take a, um, the triangle which is cut out of a square, so the triangle has unit, one unit, unit uh, length along the two short sides, so one squared plus one squared is two, so that means the length of the hypotenuse, the longer side, is a number which when you square it is equal to two. So, and we call that the square root of two. So Pythagoras um, was intrigued. OK, so what, what number is this? It should be a, a ratio of two numbers. It should be a fraction. In fact, uh, it, even before Pythagoras, the Babylonians were intrigued by this length and started to try and calculate, what is this length? It's a very simple square, a uh, simple triangle, unit size on both. So the length here is a number. The length of it is a number which, when you square it, is equal to two. So what is that number? should be able to write it down. Um, so the, you had this wonderful tablet um, dating back to um, uh, 1800 BC, and in that you can see the little uh, scratches. That's cuneiform um, for an estimate for a number which, when you square it, is quite close to two. Um, so uh, 30,547 divided by 21,600. If you square that, you get a number which is quite close to two. But you know, can we find an exact fraction which, when we square it, is equal to two? The Pythagoreans tried to do this, and then at some point they realized, actually, you can't do this. There is no fraction um, which, when you square it, will give you two. Pythagoras is absolutely appalled by this discovery, that there are lengths, very simple lengths, which you cannot capture with just simple fractions, simple ratios. Uh, and uh, he was so devastated by this, he swore his sect to secrecy. Nobody should let this out. It's too, too frightening sort of knowledge that there are lengths out there which can't be captured by just whole number ratios. Um, until one person actually let it slip that they discovered this new length um, which can't be captured by a fraction. And this guy was drowned at sea for letting out the secrets that there are numbers which can't be written as ratios. Um, so mathematics can be dangerous if uh, uh, you let the cat out of the bag. So this is an example of an irrational number, a very simple number, a number which when you square it is equal to two. But if you try to write that number down, how could you write it down? Pythagoras shows that if you try to write it as an infinite uh, decimal number, so it's 1.4, then it goes off and it just goes off to infinity. You cannot ever write it down. It never repeats itself. If it did repeat itself, so for example, a third is 0.33333, so there's a nice pattern there. But the square root of 2, Pythagoras showed, there isn't a fraction. So even when you, you cannot write this number down as a fraction or as a, a decimal number which repeats itself. So this was a kind of first realization. There are things which it's very hard to capture, very hard to write down. So irrational doesn't refer to kind of a mad, crazy bit of maths. It refers to the fact that there are numbers which cannot be written as ratios. But in some ways, they eventually they saw this in a very positive light and said, oh, that's actually quite exciting because there are new numbers out there. This was the discovery of a new sort of number, an irrational number. Um, so, so there are more numbers than just fractions. So uh, mathematics is interesting because sometimes when uh, we discover something we can't do, it gives rise to new things that we can start to play with. My third and final choice is the amazing poet and writer Lem Sisay. And this is an event from 2017 in which he is reading from Gold from the Stone. His 
a brilliant writer. I mean, he's really an extraordinary writer. His work is very visceral, it's very raw, um, and it's beautiful. But then when you hear him perform it, it turns into something else. He is electrifying on stage. He is electrifying. He's self self-deprecating, he's funny, he's he's extraordinary. He's an extraordinary writer and he's an utterly extraordinary performer. I guarantee that when you hear him read this poem, Morning Breaks, that you will find yourself having to listen to the rest of this session. But uh, yeah, in, enjoy the magnificence that is Lem Sisse. Um, Gold from the Stone is a, um, a collection of uh, my poems from um, my first uh, book. Uh, I've just said um about four times. Um... <laughs> I've got a voice in the back of my head, it's going, you crap, get off. <laughs> I've got another one, it's going, no, you're doing all right, carry on. <laughs> I've got one in the middle, it said, you two, separate now. <laughs> I've got one behind that, I said, shall we form a choir? <laughs> I've got one behind that, it said, to do a workshop about that, hey. I've got one behind that, and it's saying, look, if we want to form a choir, we're going to have to set up a constitution so that we can get the funding to get a worker to administrate the process as to whether we should form a choir in the first place. <laughs> um, thanks for being here. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. My name's uh, Lem Sisse, and uh, my book is Gold from the Stone, and the first poem is called um, Morning Breaks, and I'll just shift my emotional baggage to the right there. Um, <clears throat> And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, if anybody's ever told you that you shouldn't uh, be, you know, going in the direction that you're going in, then this poem is possibly for you and possibly not. I wrote it for myself. I don't write for an audience. A whole lot of people think that they, you write for yourself. That's the thing that you do as a writer. Sorry, I just heard myself in the back of my mind saying, shut up, Lem. <laughs> they, they know this. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, if there's any psychotherapists in the audience, I've got no voices in the back of my head, all right? You know what I mean? There's somebody squeezing their glasses up going, yes, I, 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 I can understand, Lem. Um, especially the splitting up into small groups, I understand. Uh, it's not the case. And by the way, if you do have voices, that's fine as well. I'm not saying that if you have voices, there's something wrong with that. It's okay. Um... This poem's called Morning Breaks. They always said I was over the edge, and now I am, I really am, I'm over the edge. But as I dropped in a gasp of air, I grasped, I grabbed a branch that I hoped had its roots in the rock or rock-solid roots. But there's a breeze blowing, a stunning storm coming. Thickening ink spills and swills on a bleating paper sky. A crowd of rain on the horizon staggers nearer. I sway so, I know so, I slip a little more. I sway so, I know so, I grip a little more. These tender fingers in a clenched fist. I must have slipped my back when I fell, my back. It hurts like a howl, it stings like a scowl. It weeps and stings again. And the skin splits and spits from my spine sides. And a pain develops muscles that create mouths that simulate sounds of whole city screaming. There's a storm coming, a coming storm. 
Dust spits from the cliff top into my river eyes, forcing tears over the banks to flood me. I will not drown in them. I will not drown. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. In the zip of a thick ribbon of wind, a god or a devil appears floating in front of me and tells me in a hunch of a New York accent, let go, let go. Death is the beginning of the end of 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 the beginning of the end, and he continues for 41 days and 41 nights at the end of the beginning of the end of the beginning of the end, and in a crack of lightning, the devil, the God, has vanished. There's nothing more for me to concentrate on but a storm, the sky, and my breaching back, and the cliff, and the edge, and the uprooting branch, and my knuckles so sore, cracked and numb, they favour a knot of bleeding wood. If I look down, and I do look down, I can see that blood has poured from my back, along the smoothness of my backside, slid beneath me, coiled its way seductively around my thighs, my knees, my ebonized legs. It pours in abundance, the blood, from my feet, and skydives, and I watch these red tears fall forever and transform into explicit flowers as they reach the floor. I will not become one. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. Whispers from above me. From above me, whispers gather. The cliff ledge lined with edgy people of all colors, some humming. Amazing grace. Others simply staring. Some I saw pointing down at my back and wincing. A bearded man with his hand on a Bible or a red book or a white book or a leather book or a revolutionary book or a dark green book shouted down to me in sermonic tones deeper than the sea. Let go! In the name of let go! A nervous follower peeps over the edge and offers the advice that there's someone down there. They'll catch you. And before I get chance to answer them, they erupt into a sky shattering. Someone's crying, Lord, let go. Someone's crying, Lord, let go. The harmony of their collected voices woke the spirit of the sky and they threw crosses at me. It's raining crosses. I look down past my feet, a devil or a god, a man the size of a pea, his mouth in the words, up to me, let go. Nighttime was approaching, breathless, I whispered, I will not fall, never have, never will not fall, never have, never will not fall, never have, never will not fall. And as quick as they came is as quick as they were gone, but I'm hanging on me. I'm hanging on. Darkness cloaked the horror of nighttime, of gangrenous spirits that fed upon open wounds. As lightning struck, I saw glimpses of their faces, demons whose countenance had slipped, whose fingers had stretched, whose nails had curled, whose breath stank so viciously that I spewed into the sea. My mantra, I am hanging on. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. Throughout darkness and fear until sunrise and the stillness of morning breaking, I was a silhouette hanging from a branch 
against a chalky cliff. Only the sound of my trickling blood, my breaking back, and the moaning sky for comfort. My shadow stretched across the cliff like a script title on handmade paper. The sulking storm retreated into the horizon to recollect. The sea tried to throw off its reflection. And I listened there to the tearing of my back flesh as I hanged. The flapping wet skin of my blooded back as it hanged. Tears painted salt veins along my ebonized skin. As that stark sunlight skidded across a bloodied sky. I sensed, I swear, the presence of two symmetrical shadows descending. They stretched seemingly, even pushed back the clouds seemingly. I felt them push warm air into my face seemingly, saw them in the corner of each of my eyes seemingly, magnificent wings. And I felt new muscles in my back and my chest expand with air further and further. A new air and a new spirit. And there, with not a soul around me, I unpeeled my tender fingers from that dew-drenched branch. I let the sun pour into my eyes. And finally, after years, I let go. Why? Because I was growing wings all the time, and I can fly. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers, and you can hear thousands of other clips over on the Hay Player on our website.